Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book, all right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode 11, Ella Minnow P. by Mark Dunn. Nollopton, Monday, August 7. Dear Cousin Tassie, I write this letter literally minutes from the cusp of midnight. I trust that having read it, you will put quick flame to it, for it will have been received after the onset of this peculiar prohibition, and I do not wish to place you or your mother in any jeopardy whatsoever, for I understand there will be no moratorium and no lenient shown any offender over the age of seven. Why the cutoff here? I do not know. Yet any child eight and older who speaks or writes a word contain the letter Z, it is my understanding from the proclamation, will receive the same penalty as would an adult. Children seven and younger, however, may biz and baz to their heart's content. Ah, to be a child again. I wish that you could be here. It has been an odd gathering, a warm confluence of kindred souls. Yet in terms of the pervasive atmosphere, conversely, even perversely funereal, I would like to have had my dear cousin at my side as we approach the fateful stroke and chime. Reluctantly do we bid farewell to Mistress Z, embracing her warmly, heartily, as if determined never to let her leave our side. In spirit most festive, do we attempt with all our intellectual muscle to name as many words as we are able from the pool of those we will soon be forbidden to use. Such a very long list we have produced, a list which will soon and sadly be curling black in the pop-crafted salad ceramic enlisted for its incineration. My uncle Zachary will henceforth go by his middle name, Isaac. His jocular carpenter mates Buzz and Zeke ask that they now be called, respectively, Lil Tristan and Prince Valiant the Comely. Zeke is actually applying for a legal name change. No longer may we speak of the topaz sea which laps our breeze-kissed shores, nor ever again describe azure-tinted horizons sheared by the violent blazes of our brilliant island sunrises. Hundreds of words await ostracism from our functional vocabularies. Waltz and fizz and squeeze and booze and frozen pizza pie, frizzy and fuzzy and dizzy and dozzy, the visualization of Ephraim of zap Tarzans, wheezing and sneezing, holding glazed and anodized bazookas, seized by all the bizarrities of the zany zone we call home. Dazed or zombified citizens who recognize hazardous organizations as else in their hazy midst, too late, too late to size down. Immobilized, we is. Minimalized, paralyzed. Zip, zap, zzz. Crazy. Crazy. Did I say crazy? The books have all disappeared. You were right about the books. We'll have to write new ones now. But what will we say without the whiz that was? For we cannot even write of its history, because to write of it is to write it. And as of midnight, it becomes ineffable. As of five seconds from now, as of now, the clock chimes twelve. Goodbye, asterisk. I have such a ghastly headache. I believe I'll go lie down now. Love, your cousin Ella. This my daddy be.
show given you by Double Verified Freaks, WWW Radio Complex. This radio show is regarding books and fancy books, and each four or five week period we will examine one piece of fancy books we each have read and decide if renown is deserved. Here on our journey, accompanying Regina, is Wayne, a lazy dog, whereas I am a quick brown fox. Wayne, how are you? Party on, Garth. Wayne, that is your first. Oh shoot, I missed <laughs> that. I I'm already gone. I'm exiled. <laughs> Did you? <laughs> I was about to publicly shame you, and then I said first, which had one of the, the bad letters. <laughs> Did you notice what I was? I doing? did notice what you were doing. It was pretty funny. What letter have I excised? Uh, uh, S. No. No. T. It, yes, it's T. A T. <laughs> I was. I'm, I'm sitting here with our notes in front of me, trying to figure out what letter you took out. Yeah. It, you know what? It's a good thing that Mark Dunn did not take it out because it was really hard coming up with like the alternatives to all this stuff. And I thought that there's probably a reason why Mark Dunn. It's one of those six most common letters in the alphabet. And you know how I know that? It was pretty hard. Uh, Wheel of Fortune. (laughs) No, no, no. no. You you watch Wheel of Fortune, right? (laughs) Oh, it's the elements. R-S-T-L-N-E. Those are the five letters. Those are the six letters that they give you at the end of the, at the puzzle at the end, Mm -hmm. because they're the most common letters. So yeah, they because Wheel of Fortune's like Jeopardy for morons. So the so they they make it a little easier because like you're most likely to because you get what three letters four consonants of vowel, and um, so you're most likely to pick those letters. So they give them to you, and then you pick ones that are not R S T L N E. Wow, I think we lost like thirty percent of our listenership because you just insulted people who watched Wheel of Fortune. Yeah, I watched Wheel of Fortune. <laughs> Every once in a while, if if it's oh, if man. if I'm if I'm not like eating dinner or something, so you'll turn it on. Yeah, I'll turn it on. Uh, it just goes to show you how close to geriatrics you really are. Well, friends, here we are. <laughs> and it's actually Tom and Stella here. I had to get special permission to call Tom. Um, and I guess we've revealed a little bit more about ourselves because now you know our middle names. But uh, I, wa- I thought it'd be fun to do an intro like that, and, and it was actually really stressful and difficult, as I said, to figure out how to come around and pick different words, especially like the and what and, and all yeah. the and two. I mean, having indirect, indirect objects was difficult unless you could always use four, but it was just difficult, let's just say. But here we are doing Ella Minop, which is a, a lighter novel here, and well, I'm I'm looking forward to this. It's been it feels like it's been a long time since we've spoken, actually. It has. I know we're I know we're recording about a week later than we usually do, just because of schedules. But yeah, I th- it's just been busy. We've both been really yeah. busy over the last month because. Yeah. 
you took more than one trip. I was teaching. I start a new job. It's just been it's been crazy. Yeah, it has been. Life gets yeah, in the way. Life yeah. gets in the way. I, I hope everyone has listened to the previous episode, which was our, our ten special mm-hmm. and our first tangent special. And I have to say that I think uh, viewers have a lot to thank me for because my influence, I think, over the years has drawn you into putting bloopers at the end of the show. And what's great about these little... I mean, listeners can't expect bloopers every time. No. But I love... I, I do appreciate that Tom can laugh at himself and I can laugh at myself. And so, uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm just excited to be back and I'm excited to go back to our regular programming. Yeah. And I feel like we're starting out a new year to a certain extent. Um, so, yeah. I don't always do bloopers... When I do, I do them because they're just that good. You know, like, like the two that I chose, I really, I laughed as I was, like, I, like, because what I'll do is, like, I'll take that whole chunk that we record before we even officially go on the air and I just throw it into an extra file and maybe one day I'll do something with the outtakes. (laughs) But, like, as I was recording, editing that episode, like, those two clips, like, literally made me stop and laugh. Mm-hmm. And then cut, cut and paste because it's like I, I want to use this now, and that's that's when I will uh, that's when I will include like some sort of blooper or something in a show. So I'm not yeah. I'm not I'm, I'm stingy with my bloopers. I guess yeah, can't wait for that Mondo show to come out. Well, as noted, we are doing Ella Minope, and I feel like it would be a cheat to play the emoji game that I, I've started a couple episodes back because even on the cover you've got you know you've got it's like eleanor and park all over again (laughs) it is true it is true so i guess we have to wait for the hard ones to play yeah yeah i i really like the cover which is great and it's also interesting because when i announced this book i felt like i didn't enunciate well enough because after i announced it and we were off air you said what book are we doing again because i mean it's a play on yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously, Ella Minope. And then, so I always, when I'm talking about it, I'm like, Ella Minope. I have to split it up. But anyways, if you have the book and, you know, the cover image and everything, you will see that there's a lovely girl that's sort of old-timey. This could be one of the questions, I guess, that you asked. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, a minnow and then a peepaw. Yeah. So I think it'd be too easy to play the emoji yeah. game. And f- the former yearbook advisor that I am, once... <laughs> But once a yard, always a yard. The use of typeface and design on the cover is great because it's got that. I don't know what the name of the. It's it's a it's all serif font, and the the mark done, and then the there's a there's a blurb at the very top of the of the copy that I have from the from the library with a, with a blurb from the Christian Science Monitor uh, is is done in this um, almost script like. But it's just it's it's really perfect. I, I just I really like and then there's this this tangerine sort of color that mixes well with the with the off white. It, it's a very it's pl- it's a little playful. It's a little mm-hmm. twee, and it really when you when we'll talk about the content of the book, it's mm-hmm. completely misleading. And I love it because, like, you you look at a book like Fahrenheit 451 
has like the edition that I've had over the years has like um, a book of matches that is also a book, you know, like, and it's, it's, it doesn't bury the lead and um, all the copy of all quiet on the Western front that I have is uh, has like a pic, a photo from world war one on the cover and um, Mm -hmm. night by Ellie Wiesel has like barbed wire on it. And and my wife's copy or our copy was, is Amanda's originally, of Dracula is a penguin edition that has this really cool vampire photo on the cover, that photo on um, painting or whatever on the mm-hmm. cover. It's like, you know, wow, you know, so some of these don't, some of these covers don't bury that lead and granted they all can't be the catcher of the rye, but this is just, I, I like how it's done because it sets, it sets you up for a very kind of polite tone. And, and I really, I just really, really like how that does that. Yeah. Yeah, I think we're, we're showing our hands that we're comic fans, right? That covers mean something to mm-hmm. us. And I think, you know, I, I sort of envision these three icons almost being like the Nollip statue and then the Ella Minnow yeah. being like the pangram at the bottom. So I think, you know, who knows if that was intentional, but there's, I think, some similarities at least with the, yeah. with what's going on. Yeah. So, Yeah. Uh, well, of course, we like to talk about the history, as my editor Dustin likes to sometimes say. So I, I think I know what your history with the book is, but you can, of course, say it. But along with your history of the book, I actually want to know what your history is with the quick brown fox jumped over the lazy dog. Uh, this is the first time I've read it. However, I realized as I got through it, not as I got through actually quickly into it by the time I probably about a quarter of the way in it, I'd heard of the book, but I'd heard of the book in a vague context, maybe talking like a writing workshop or something or, or something, whatever somebody talking about where they heard about a book or read a book where the, the author kept eliminating letters throughout the book, but I never remembered the author or the title. And then I was, but I think I was probably about like maybe a quarter of the way in when events started unfolding, and I went, "Oh, this is that book I've heard about." Um, mm-hmm. But but no, this is the first time I read it. I, I checked it out of the library. My, I don't remember when I first heard that sentence. It was probably elementary school. It was probably from a teacher who told us that that sentence has every letter of the alphabet. And I could have sworn I've heard a variation on it where the, where the sentence was the quick brown fox jumps over the lazy sleeping dog. Mm. But that might just be my memory playing tricks on me. But I definitely knew this pretty early on, and it may have been – just a teacher. I don't think it was part. It might have not have been part of a lesson. It might have just been a fact, a little trivia fact that one of my teachers told me when I was a kid, like told the class, and I just never forgot it. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, this is a for me a Rory's reading list book, and I believe I read it last year, and I won't say whether I liked it or not. Though. I picked it, so I'm sure you can guess. So I read it last year, and then our depart. Well, we're, what we were told to do at school over the summer is that now normally we are given reading over the summer. And this, while I love to read, these are not books that I would read in my spare time. We're talking about uh, 
I'm trying to think of uh, things about like the Christian liberal arts, but it's very philosophical and you know, phil philosophy is fine, but I'm more of one of those people that needs the concretes in order to help me progress in my teaching. So I, I don't really like the summer reading that we're giving. Books about pedagogy are just as boring, though. So yes. please, so it's like you know, it could be practical too, but you're just sitting there like banging your head. Yeah. Yep. And the thing is that we usually only the first day that we get back with in service we talk about it. So it's like, well, I just wasted all this time and we've only talked about it once. So, anyways, that's normally what we do. But this year, our boss lady said that instead of giving you a book, what you're going to do is we're doing a lot of uh, interdisciplinary or interdiscipline collaboration, which is harder for foreign language. So math and sciences, we're going to switch books that they were using in school, in class, or maybe something that they felt like dealt with their fields, and then history and English. So then foreign language, probably in fine arts as well, had their own choices to make. So my department chair, boy, I'm sorry, this is going to be into a little story. My department chair asks for any suggestions, and he's a, he's a bit of a curmudgeon, like my friend Tom. And so I sent this out, but I, secretly I was snickering because I thought, well, he is not going to, you know, he, he's going to poo-poo it right away. So other people are sending in things like The Name of the Rose, which I've read and Thank goodness we didn't have to read that again because once is enough for me. There, there are some other things. I know that Les Mis and Don Quixote popped up, which I'd be fine with reading uh, because, you know, they would be representative of the modern languages and everything. So we were talking about different things. I was okay with uh, the big tales but not Name of the Rose. But this, actually, my department chair really he was excited about it and I thought yes let's do it so we all decided to get this and uh, he did make fun of it a little bit that you know the other departments are surely reading denser novels and then he like flips through this and of course there are some blank pages or pages with an alphabet on it but everyone ended up reading it uh, so secretly I picked it also because I could do double the work um, <laughs> or you know kill kill a bird <laughs> with with what kill two birds with one stone we were supposed to have a meeting in the summer, and I was super pumped about it, but it happened right after SDCC, and I got mixed up on the time, so I was the one person who wasn't there, and I had all my questions already prepped out for it, so I was super disappointed about that. But here we are. So that's my history. So this is second time that I've read it. I'm sort of cheating, I guess, but Tom's going to cheat I was gonna say, he's do you know how many, going to say, do you know how many novels like are on – a, we're on my list anyway that I have that I end up teaching like such as um, l l like if we were to do Ibsen's A Doll's House or Romeo and Juliet or Twelfth Night you know, like some of these were on the list to begin with and I end up teaching them anyway so I see I don't think yeah. that's cheating it's just it's it's being okay. efficient because they're still when they're I still... do it, it's efficient I think when you do it it is cheating double standard much. <laughs> Yes, only the best of friends hold each other accountable in this way. Anywho, so anyways, that's why I chose this book. Now, my history the quick brown fox jumped over the lazy dog is my, my memory is coming from third grade learning cursive. And this was the sentence that we were forced to replicate time and time again to learn the cursive alphabet. So that's my <laughs> that's my history. I am sure that I had to type this in typing class. So, Are, can you type with those fingers? 
Yeah, they're too fat for my cell phone, but they're <laughs> fine for the keyboard. Oh my heavens! Oh man. So, um, no, I took typing, like actual typing, in high school, like oh. literal rows of typewriters in a classroom, and my mm-hmm. teacher walking up and down the rows, just yelling out letters. Wow! Letter yelling out like letters. A S D F J K L colon space a and like you that was the beginning of class and like and and then it eventually became like okay you have to like type up this letter or whatever but like the mm-hmm. beginning of the semester it was we're gonna get on home keys and i'm gonna yell out and you would do drills it was like practicing scales on the piano so wow that's it's it's two reasons why I, i'm i'm a pretty fast typist and the two reasons for that are a i took typing in my sophomore year of high school because my dad was like you need to take typing it was one of the few times that my parents forced me to do something that I was like, actually, this worked out well. And B, I played the piano for a number of years, so I have a halfway decent dexterity. Mm. So I'm really rusty. I haven't sat down on a piano for years, which I need to do, but yeah. Well, I'm, I'm still waiting for uh, you and your wife and I to create the next like pop sensation. <laughs> You see, though, the, you have to get behind me and my sister, who were going to be the who they were. We were going to be mm. the next carpenters without the anorexia. Right. So, yeah, that's right. I remember you yeah. said that. Okay, well, you know, speaking of typing, we had to do that in elementary school. So it seems like you were on a slower track. Oh no, maybe. we did it in elementary school. But like, my dad was like, "You need." I was looking for an elective <laughs> sophomore year because I, sure. I couldn't take two study halls, and my dad was like. Typing. I saw typing. He's like, you should take typing because you're going to need uh-huh. it. Okay. And then, um, so I, but we had already learned how to type like um, on a Commodore 64 in the second grade. Wow. Uh, Stella doesn't know what that is, audience. Stella was born. Yeah, I, at, know. I just, I was just going to be like, uh huh, uh huh. And anybody, and, and a number of you who listen to the show, hi, Professor Allen. Um, <laughs> hi, Mike. Uh, yeah. Are listening to it, and and when I say like load star comma eight comma one, you're gonna know exactly what I'm talking about. Is that um, that game where uh, Matthew Broderick is playing and he sends off a nuclear weapon? No, that's the movie War Games. Oh, yeah, okay. so. But I will anyway. say that those typing it, yeah, those typing intensive classes. While I do remember, I think somewhat cheating through them. That I'm actually a pretty quick typer, and they help. They help. I mean, the GRE, when I was typing up that essay, it really helped to be able to stare at the screen and not the keyboard. Mm-hmm. So I, I am appreciative of that. But Well, we got off track, but I That's blame okay. Tom, and you should too. Uh, you what know what? Do? I couldn't find – I know. I could, <laughs> there's no continuity with our show, folks. But as I told Tom earlier today, the only continuity is that I give him a hard time. So well, I couldn't actually. Yes, I would. Re- you want to address this? Come on, let's go. Well, would you want continuity? I mean, we could go full DC, and then the continuity oh. would be so confusing that episode one actually never happened, and instead, um, I don't know, Shag started the whole thing or something. So be be grateful oh. that there is no continuity here. That's true. Or, like, randomly we just start off with a new number one a couple years down the road. Or, like, it's an all-new number one, and we switch things up again. I don't know. And suddenly uh, and suddenly, everybody's, like, worse. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That would be really terrible. <laughs> Sorry. All right. Let... <laughs> 
Is our, it time? Our, our therapy session about our PTSD from the New 52 is scheduled for later this week. So like, <laughs> we're all in counseling for the, from the New 52. I blame you. This is bad. See, this is why we shouldn't go this long between episodes because then we talk, talk. So I could. (laughs) Whatever. Anyways, because this is a rather recent book, I couldn't find really any background or like context or, you know, there was a big reason why Dunn decided to uh, write this. I will tell you a little bit about Dunn, that he is an American author and playwright. He studied film at Memphis State University, which is now the University of Memphis. And then he took on some postgraduate work in screenwriting at the University of Texas at Austin. And he moved to New York in 1987, where he was working in the New York Public library while writing plays in his free time so that's just a little bit about him so more of a film a filmic background which is interesting given this which now it has been picked up its rights have been picked up to write to uh create a film based on this and i think it'd be i mean oh i don't want to say it but because i don't want to spoil but i love this book so much that it excites me to think that oh i could watch it however I just don't think that you can properly capture this in visual form. What are your thoughts on that? I I agree, actually. I agree completely with that, yeah. Mm. (sighs) Yeah, I don't know. I I recently read Everything, Everything, and uh, there there is a lot of, within it, images and g chats and emails and everything and so they recently did this film it came out in the spring and i saw it with some uh eighth graders that were about to graduate move on and the images they did the same which was uh really nice and fanciful and then the g chat and gmail and things like that turned into texting so they were able to translate that i think well and for the time and everything but just this with the letter i just don't really know besides like showing ellie and tassie like at a you know at their little table writing how can you yeah because i have you ever watched house of cards i haven't house of cards is the same gimmick where people will be texting each other and the text will just kind of scroll up on the screen over what's going on and and it's it's effective because they just show people walking around and, and, and texting or whatever they're doing and um and it works because it's very the way it's done is just makes a lot of sense because we all you know we a lot of us text so so like walking around and like you know looking at the phone and then texting and deciding what you're going to say like you can do it for dramatic effect but like you know when you watch somebody do it especially on house of cards you're like okay well i can totally see what this is what this is going um and it, it's kind of the House of Cards, at least in the first couple of seasons, it's the House of Cards version of the Aaron Sorkin walking and talking thing that you would especially get from like the West Wing. But you're right. This is very dependent on handwritten letters that yeah. you couldn't update technologically because it wouldn't fit the story, in my right. opinion. How are you going to – if you do it with voiceover, I don't think that works. Yeah. You know? I mean, the only thing, yeah, emails, but then, like you said, it 
you said about, you know, it doesn't work with the story. I think it defeats the story because this island is clearly set apart yeah. from technological advances. So to do that, I think, would be a crime against what its original purpose exactly. was. And then, while well, if you are doing voiceovers, you have a really big problem towards the end when they're using phonetics mm-hmm. to spell out words because then someone may say of and you're like oh well they're saying of but actually it was spelled o-p-h yeah so how do you do that yeah so i'm super nervous about it like i said um i'm not i'm not really sure (laughs) what's going to happen but yeah so i want to get into the plot synopsis so we can get into this discussion because i've actually been since i reread it really just excited about it and whenever our department mentions it to somebody else that you would really like this because they all loved it that they always turn to me and to give a plot synopsis, (laughs) which are really short. I've gotten pretty good about it. This one's going to be lengthier because it's more detailed, but I just get really excited talking about this because I I love it so much. I think it's amazing. So here we go. So this is what Ella Minnow P is about. The entire story unravels on the eye. And thank you to some site that gave me this plot synopsis. I can't even remember what it was, so I apologize. But anyways, the entire story unravels on the island of Nollop off the coast of North Carolina. Nollop is named after Nevin Nollop, a man who wrote a sentence containing all 26 letters of the alphabet. The quick brown fox jumps over the lazy dog. Because of his feet, Nollop's statue is erected in town as a monument to the island's namesake. Ella Minnow P., the main character, writes to her cousin Tassie, announcing the first of several terrible events on the island. A letter has fallen from the statue. At first, what seems a simple fallen tile becomes a huge problem for the island. The councilmen of the island deem the fallen tile a sign from Nollop himself, a sign that the letter shouldn't be used by the inhabitants any longer. Ella welcomes the challenge, but Tassie warns of the possible implications, including the loss of precious books. Sure enough, the books are taken away for fear of containing a single illegal letter. Within days of the first ban, several people commit their first offenses. The offender's neighbors, Ella notes, told the authorities. People begin to turn on each other. The first person to reach his third and final offense is a young boy. He is banished from the island. Another letter falls, and Ella wonders if the madness will end. It does not. The council bans the letter, and the local newspaper closes its doors out of fear of causing further offense. Tassie's mother commits her first offense and is ratted out by a boy's family. As a teacher, her mother wonders if she can continue teaching because she speaks so much. Her mother, Mitty, does not understand why a child's parents would report her. Tassie writes to the family, who promptly tell her they respect Nolp's wish and, regardless of who commits the offense, offenders must be reported to the authorities. A man from the mainland writes to Mitty, asking if he can visit the island. He met the banished boy and wants to document the goings-on of the island. She agrees he should come under the guise of an old family friend. After an entire family is publicly flogged for their second offense, Ella reports another fallen letter. The council announces anyone thinking the fallen letters are anything but a sign from Nollop will be charged with heresy. A movement begins to grow among the citizens, quietly. Mitty finds out about one such group from a man named Rory. Nate Warren, the man from the mainland, arrives, and Tassie is smitten with him. Should be. More letters fall, including O, which has several representatives in Nollop's sentence. Ella believes the council cannot take it away. They don't. Instead, they insist the letter be limited. Nate reveals a test was done on one of the fallen letters. The glue holding the letters is so old. It is the reason for the fall, not something supernatural. He tries to convince a council member, Mr. Lytle. 
Instead, they come to an agreement. Nate and the other inhabitants need to come up with the sentence with all the letters of the alphabet, but the sentence must be shorter than Nollips. They agree on 32 total letters. More letters fall, but everyone works away at creating the perfect 32-letter sentence. Unfortunately, Nate is taken away by the L-E-B. The police, <laughs> basically like the SS, mm-hmm. once it is discovered <laughs> that he is from the mainland. However, the challenge continues. The town gets stuck on a sentence of 47 letters written by a man at the university. The council begins to seize property. They decide a place of worship needs to be built in Nollop's honor. Cassie is devastated by Nate's expulsion and secretly writes threats to the council. They find out and take her away to decide her fate. Her family worries, and Ella and Mitty visit her in prison daily. Soon, Ella's parents are banished from the island for their final offense. Nate <laughs> stows away on a ship and rescues Tassie, and they run away with Mitty. Ella is alone. She works with a couple people on the island, trying to create the 32-letter sentence. Unfortunately, her allies slowly disappear. Some are killed, some hide, and others run from the island. Stubborn, Ella vows to learn sign language and how to write with numbers. The final letters on the statue, L-M-N-O-P, <laughs> happen to sound like Ella's name and contain the letters of Nolop's name. She finds her, their saving sentence in a letter from her father to the family. The sentence contains each of the 26 letters of the alphabet and totals 32 letters in all. Here's the, the sentence. Pack my box with five dozen liquor jugs. The bands are lifted and inhabitants return to the island. Who boy. <laughs> Craziness. <laughs> Well, Tom, did you like this book? I really did. Mm. I really did. I, because I, I did not, I didn't read much about it aside from, you know, you recommended it and I might have read like the dust jacket cover, you know, like just to get a little bit of an idea when I picked it up. But it went in a direction I totally didn't see going and I really, really enjoyed it. I literally read this in two hours. Mm. Like I had, time in an afternoon where I was off one day this summer and picked it up to, to you know, read it to, to do the show and everything mm-hmm. thinking, okay, I'll read a little bit and then I'll, you know, as I usually do with the books that we read, you know, read a little bit every night and et cetera. And like I was done two hours later and, and it, that it was not because, Oh, it's so easy to read. It's really quick. It was no, because it's, really really good and i could have put down so i really enjoyed it yeah and and i think i've already said how much i love it i think it's it's quickly become a great favorite of mine i just think it's it's thoughtful it's whimsical i think it also has some really scary moments yeah uh because clearly you know it's it's also i think satirical Mm -hmm. and um yeah i whoo man i just Mark, I would like to shake that man's hand because I don't know how he did what he did, quite honestly. But, yeah, I just I can't recommend this enough. I, I think it's one of those things that surely everyone could enjoy because so far the people that I've talked to have really enjoyed it. So I'm so glad you liked it. When you said you read it in two hours, I got really <laughs> nervous. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's it. Whew, OK, well, let's get to it. The discussion. Here we go. I, you know, first I wanted to talk about the idea of the word and the single letter because I think 
we've heard so many times, you know, how powerful the word is. Mm-hmm. And which is true, obviously, because you can destroy someone <laughs> with a word or lift them up with a word. But I felt like clearly the single letter is just as powerful. And that, that was originally my question. So I came up with a different question. Did this novel make you rethink the power of a word in a single or a single letter? Did you have any preconceived notions of them? And then going into this, now you've sort of rethought what they mean, either individually or as a collective whole. The funny, I, mean, I don't know if this is a cheat or not, but I thought of the single. <laughs> the, no, 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 no. I thought of the the power of the single letter when it comes to the spelling of somebody's name, mm. because you and I are both teachers, and I don't know about you, but I have had students with the same name but like multiple spellings of the name, like Kaylee or Jasmine or uh, Michaela, and I know sure. these are all girl names, and I'm not. I'm just trying to think of the names that come to mind. Ja- I wrote down. Jasmine uh, is one of them. In fact, there's a whole subsection of the book Freakonomics that has a list of all the different ways people have spelled the name Jasmine. And I was thinking of how last names as well can have variation on spelling and how that replaces, like, you know, variation of spelling, but this, I'm all, but the, but I, I, like I said, I don't know if it's a cheat because I'm specifically talking about things that are proper nouns. Sure. And but but that's where I can see the power of a letter because I'm very conscious of making sure I call somebody by the right name mm-hmm. or pronounce their first name or last name correctly, especially first name because part of it is because I have a I have a last name that often gets mispronounced. I've heard Panarese. I've heard Panarese. Panarese. Well, and that's that's what some people are like. Do you sound it like? Do you enunciate it in the Italian way? I said no. Unfortunately, it's been Americanized over the years. And I've heard people say Panarese, and I've heard Mm -hmm. people say Panarese, but I've heard like weird variations on it, like Parnese and things like that. And I'm like, where are you switching the R's or things like that? (laughs) So uh, being conscious of and and it's over. It's I'm so numb to it that like I don't. I'm not a jerk about it when I don't correct people about Mm -hmm. it or I correct them very politely if they ask. But if they don't ask, I just let it go. But from having my name mispronounced over the years, if your name is something that is not Jane or Tom or Stella or Mike or something that's like, you know, very, very straightforward. And Mm -hmm. it's, you know, um, I had a student last last year whose name was spelled D-R-A-R- D-A-R-R-E-L-L, and it was Darrell, right? But it, you could very well say – you could have very well turned around and said, no, my name is Daryl. So mm. things like pronunciation, things things like right. that I'm very, very conscious of because you know I have a very diverse group of students. Plus, I have students who – you know, have changed their names because they have they identify with a different gender. I have students who are um, Latino and they go by their middle names and things like that. So making sure that I'm spelling them correctly when I write comments or making sure that I pronounce them correctly. That's where I do see the power of a letter because it's in that case, it's part of your identity and that can go with like a place as well in everyday language. It did make me think of the letter I and what would you do if you couldn't use the letter I, especially as a pronoun? And I was like, that would be interesting. I did ask, I did have a, a write a note down. Why have there no new letters to the alphabet? Mm. Have we exhausted? Because the English language has not exhausted its words. Sure. 
new um, new words are added every year to the Oxford English Dictionary. But we we've uh, in my lifetime and in your lifetime they've not added a letter. Mm-hmm. So that's really interesting to me. I'm like, why have they never added a letter to the English language? And I I don't know that they will, but I think perhaps that's the reason why people enjoy creating their own languages mm-hmm. and their own symbols and things like that because they. They can create it from scratch. They can add new ones if they want to and things like that. I mean, I don't know what those other letters would be like. <laughs> um, no, I know. But, it, was just, yeah. it was just something true for thought. Sure, sure, yeah. I, I think it's always interesting to – I mean, I, I enjoy linguistics and, and to go from Pi, which is Proto-Indo-European, which is sort of the mother of all um, Western – and I mean Western mm-hmm. isn't like the West of Asia, basically – languages mm-hmm. and, then, and then, you know, go through and see – Latin doesn't have all of the the letters, and you've got Greek, of course, characters and things like that. So yeah. that's always interesting. I, you know, I'm really, I try really hard to not misspell words. And Me too. This is probably funny because hopefully most people do, but you know, I teach eighth graders who like <laughs> frightful, <laughs> frightful what I see on some of their written assignments, and they're just like, oh, I'm just not a good speller, and they're fine with it. But it's also okay. like I'm trying really hard to be a good model, and especially when you're writing up on the board all the time, you don't want you know a 13-year-old to be like, oh, myth, myth, uh, yeah, you spelled that wrong. <laughs> so, you know, I, I'm conscious of that, but I think I didn't really recognize – the individuality of the letters because I think as a reader I'm more focused on the words and and Uh the letter is a collective whole and and creating new words and sounds and things like that but once I read this I realized how important I mean it's basically like a a body part you know there uh, some people can get along without certain body yeah. parts but you're, you you're not whole certainly so it's just like you drop one letter and the entire nature of the word has changed or yeah. you have to get rid of it i mean look at my intro i had to change words <laughs> it certainly didn't sound the same i was calling literature fancy books and so you know you lose <laughs> you'll lose a little something there so and and some letters that you think aren't as important actually turn out to be way important i mean who would have yeah. thought the t would be as troublesome as it was when i was coming up with all that so i really was starting to to rethink this and and whew, i had no idea that they were as important as they are so i have an even deeper appreciation for language I, I just heard to me. I've I've taken a couple of courses on adolescent literacy over the cor- over the last you know six months or so. This stuff was about engaging reluctant readers, but like also very low level readers, students who really need serious remediation, and like where you have to tackle like things like phonemes. I mean, like things that you learn naturally, essentially, as a child to pronounce and read. Um, and that's why I'd be curious is to if because I don't I don't teach students who are severely reading deficient at least on the area on the level of like a reading specialist does, sure, yeah. and I'd be curious as to what the opinion of somebody and if I don't know who anybody in the audience is but if you're a special education teacher or yeah. a reading specialist or somebody in that regard and you've read this novel like what is your take on that and the power of a letter because yeah. that might be you know for somebody who's like very very literacy challenged yeah. Letters are very, very important because, because of the fact that they're building blocks of words. And I think you're right. I think you and I as readers, as well, very well-read people, do think of the power of specific 
words and vocabulary, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but the letters escape us because, uh, you know, you and I have probably been reading since we were like four years old, maybe even younger. Yeah, I was reading you know, like, In the Womb. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> You were, like, born in a Batgirl costume with, like, a copy of uh, Jane Eyre in your hand or something. Oh, absolutely. So, I had yeah. brown judo by the time I came out. Yeah, I'm sure you did. Um, <laughs> but you know what I get. You know what sure, I get. Sure, sure. Yeah, just, yeah, I do. I do. I'm just kind of curious. Is yeah, You're right. We do tend to take letters for granted in that mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, dysgraphia and dyslexia are two terms that I'm, you know, thinking of right now. Just yeah. Like they see and or they write differently than than what is actually there so yeah that's certainly interesting yeah well this whole novel we're seeing the breakdown of the alphabet and running parallel with that as you start to see is that their society on this island is starting to break down do you think that i mean in the end we we have hope right that mm. it's going to go back to i should say quote unquote normal but do you think that either either or the alphabet or the society can recover from what has happened yes because the novel only takes place over the course of two months <laughs> oh man you just cheat and lesson rot this episode why how am i cheating I on that i said I... yes Did you, were you too busy laughing at me to know hear my actual answer there no, I heard you. You said no, okay. yes because the novel told me it took place over two months. Well, no, no. Like I, 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 when I went to answer this question, I literally looked at the first date and the last date of okay. the book. Sure, sure. And it takes place over the course of two months. And and I, I, I flashed to two particular other works of literature that have very similar scenarios in them. One of them is Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury, which I have brought up many times over the course of numbers of podcasts especially this one it's one of my all-time favorite books fahrenheit 451 it's implied that the world in which they're living in that book has been around for a while but not around long enough that nobody forgets the way the world used to be but everybody who remembered the way that world used to be is now starting to get old like really old like my parents age old 60s 70s old so they're going to be eventually dying off and by the time they die off nobody's going to be left to remember the world the way it used to be and therefore it's pretty much over unless somebody discovers it so it's it's at least a generation removed here it's a couple of months so it's going to take a while to undo it but it can be undone because there are plenty of people who can come back and be like oh we're free again the other book that i was that was in a book it's a play the other the the play that this really reminds me of is the crucible Mm. by arthur miller and um i know how you sweated in the back when you touched this on something like a stallion (laughs) (laughs) okay continue and um that is a book or play, I'm sorry, that is about an actual historical event, the Salem Witch Trials. Now, I'd have to look this up, but I believe the effects of the Salem Witch Trials were lasting. And people sought retribution and compensation and restitution for the damage done to their family name for years, like decades after that happened. Um, So there was permanent damage. And, And if you look at even incidents in our modern history... They have effects that ripple throughout into other into other incidents, into other events. Like because history is cyclical and history is relationships. And a really modern and, and I'm thinking of this because there were two shows about this on last year. 
which was the OJ Simpson trial. There was a uh, outstanding. There were two. There was an outstanding documentary by ESPN called I think it was called OJ Made in America, and there was the equally outstanding The People versus OJ Simpson miniseries on FX. Both of those, the OJ Simpson Made in America documentary starts. It's it's like the whole life of OJ Simpson, but the TV miniseries doesn't begin with the doesn't really begin with the murder. It, it, it has some preamble to it, which is the Rodney King beating. And the riots that occurred in Los Angeles in 92, 93, because you see how like that effect and how that that community was not repaired from what happened. And this happened and there was a direct effect of so you get kind of the sociology of it all. And 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 with something like this, the immediate wounds will heal, but there will be deep wounds that do last for a while, just like with anything in history. But it is recoverable because it's only been so long that this has happened. It, this this isn't this is not taking place thirty years. This doesn't last thirty years. It hasn't lasted thirty years. I guess I can partially agree with you, but I don't know if it's the time that makes a difference because a lot of really terrible stuff went down, and so I think a lot of bad stuff could happen. It could completely break a society apart, and it could only be a week. So I, I don't know if necessary. I feel like time literally is just a number in this case because, you know, at the end of the, the councilmen, except for Lytle, I'm pretty sure, all of them kill themselves. You've got, I think there are going to be wounds from neighbors that were informed on by other neighbors. Like that's not necessarily going to go away. So I, I think they'll get back, but I don't know. They might find some sort of sense of normalcy, but they will never be the same is my thinking. I, uh, I, I think they're going to be, hold your in, take a breath. I think they're definitely <laughs> going to have an even more, <laughs> a greater appreciation of the alphabet for sure. I was wondering if the exiles would even return this is something that i've been contemplating a while because they're over there have they not felt betrayed by the system and by their home that they were kicked out are they going to go back wouldn't that be really hard to return so i sort of wonder about that yes that is a good question that's a question i ask myself too okay and then of course you have the government breakdown like i said and, and the leaders were lost so you've got a whole new institution potentially to start off so i I'm I'm with you. I, I think it's possible to sort of pick up the pieces, but I think that this was whoo, this was really really damaged with all of the stuff that was going on, and so I, I think it's going to take a while. I think I, I'm hoping that no one forgets because it's one of those. I feel like I've watched a show where you know something bad happens and everyone's saying to themselves, "We will never forget." But then you know several generations go and they've forgotten all of it, and then the same bad things happen. Like things are cyclical. Haven't we? Did we do a book about this? It sounds so familiar. Like I've discussed this with you. Well, but, I don't know. You could have something really, really oh, bad happen, and yeah. then a couple of generations later, somebody in power comes out and says, "Well, there was violence on both sides," okay. and tries to spin it so that the other side is actually. To blame when the side that was I remember what the discussion was I'm just going to ignore you I remember it was from the Watchmen with uh, Prof Prof and Ian Squared because they, <laughs> yeah, were yeah, yeah, they... About, they were talking about how the uh, you know the squid creature brought everyone together <laughs> I love how it's, no no it was, it was yeah it was is Adrian is yeah, um, yeah, is playing the long right, game well enough yeah so it brought everyone together but who's to say that down the road they're not at each other's throats again yeah. So this is one of those things where I, I really hope they remember, and but you know something else may happen. But I think they're 
totally and irrevocably changed. I don't know about the exiles. I think I would be a little hesitant about it, especially if, you know, my neighbor betrayed me. How do you get back in relationship with them? So, yeah. whew. I just, I just disagree with your two months, which is why I laughed at it. But so I, I'm so offended you. But I, because I, I just think that it could have been two weeks, two days. Like if it's huge damage, it's, it's hard to get back from that. No, I, I, I agree with you in part on that as well. I was just bringing up the point in time that that something, an incident like that, the quicker it's over. I think the higher the probability for eventual healing as opposed to deep, unhealable wounds. Like in the immediate, it's going to be very, very, very uneasy. Mm-hmm. As time goes on, that's easier to heal because it is because because of the relationship between how much time has passed and how much time things. Especially because when you're talking about events in history and they tend to get as we get further and further away from them they do tend to get boiled down into more simpler terms mm-hmm. for people to explain and even our historical figures get boiled down to like sort of these almost like character archetypes as opposed to actual human beings like you know sure. you see it with you see it with like our founding fathers you see it with with other if i'm just sticking with american history with other people in american history lincoln king kennedy you know like they're known for like you know there, you might be able to rattle off a few facts about them, and that's all you know about them. And but, like you know, their actual humanity, and the, and the the complexity of what they did, and the gray area of issues, and 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 the complexity of the issues get boiled down into something simple because it's just a simple package. And so, I think with something like this on Nalp Island, this becomes like I don't know, like the disturbance or something. Like it gets it gets a name. It'll get a name. Oh, it, it, the incident, it'll get a name. People talk. No, no, yeah. no. No, and no. It, yeah, I know. Like, yeah, it, that like black becomes, day or yeah, something it, it, like that. Yeah, I'm it, totally with you. And I'm not trying to offend anybody, but it becomes like on some level 9-11 is becoming like that where it's this mm. abstract thing that ha- – like something happened. Something horrible, horrible, horrible happened. Yet at the same time, we keep talking about 9-11 and there's a whole generation right now. Who has no context for it because they were right. born like you and I are yeah. teaching people have been teaching people for years who do not remember it, right. and we are both now to the point where the kids who were teaching weren't were either just born or not born. So it is to them what like Vietnam was, you know, or something like was to us, where where we knew it, we saw it in movies and things like that, but we couldn't really comprehend what was going on. Mm-hmm. And that's I think what would happen with something like this, especially since it was like one small period. And things, especially yeah. as the generations go on and the people who were here die off. Mm-hmm. I have a funny anecdote and then a serious one. The okay. funny one is that we really are at the, I had like an old person moment, like you must have probably every day of your life, where I was sitting with a, um, <laughs> a former student and I said, you know who 98 degrees are? And there was silence. And so I woke over <laughs> and at her and I said, you know who 98 degrees are? And she said, that's not a person. <laughs> And it was heartbreaking for me. But the serious thing is that's actually really disconcerting with the whole 9-11 thing is also we're at a point where, well, I guess we have been at a point for a while now, but I'm afraid it's going to increasingly happen, that people are denying the Holocaust ever happened. And that's bad enough. But the other thing that worries me is that if more people start denying it and we completely, like, wash it from whatever, that it happens again. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, it's um... (sighs) – so that's yeah. Yeah, because because we there are histories of events like that happening more than once. 
maybe not on the scale of the Holocaust, but like, you know, we've, or other events where people remember them and then, um, try to repeat them because, you know, it's an example or it's something they want to mm. be known for or, or things, but you're right. I, I think the further and further away that, you know, it's the, what's the, I believe the term is bearing witness. Mm. The idea that, that you must tell the story, you must bear witness because if you don't, people will forget. And we never have to forget. And and that's I, I think you make a really good point there. And I think and, and you're right where people will forget or that weird sect of this didn't happen or this didn't happen the way you think it did mm-hmm. gets in there and they're actually pushing an agenda of historical inaccuracy for political gain. Mm-hmm. And that has happened with events in our history. Yeah. That's happened with historical figures. There have been there there have been historical figures who accomplished a lot of who accomplished a lot of good, yet people who don't agree with them or people who have opposing political views in the now will do what they can to tarnish that historical figure because it serves their purpose. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like turning around saying, Oh, well, Abraham Lincoln was a racist. And just leaving it at that, and they want you to like they want to plant that little seed of doubt, like this person who is held up as one of the greatest presidents in the history of the United States, and and in some cases many of them were flawed. But that's there's a difference between pointing out flaws yeah. and exploring humanity mm-hmm. and denigrating a person because what they did doesn't fit your agenda in the now. Sure, yeah, and, and I know I, we're getting I, off track here. I apologize. We sure are, but it, it also reminds. I mean, you can't hold anyone up to be like. <laughs> This idol, right? Which I think yeah. is, is part of this novel because they certainly are touting Nollop as this sort of all-seen person who is almost in rivalry to God at one point, you know, towards yeah. the, end of the novel. Yeah, and I know, and I know you have a question later on in that. I do so. absolutely. Yeah, yeah, gets to the heart of it. With the loss of letters comes the loss of complex sentences and words. Obviously, these people. You have to read it to really understand, but they are really articulate. They're very literate, and I think the best example to show that they're different from everyone else is that I think it was Tassie went to visit on the mainland. I think it was her, and her cousins. It must not have been her cousins. It must have been someone. Maybe it wasn't Tassie, but do you remember this episode where they said that whoever was visiting like spoke funny? Mm-hmm. Do you remember that? So clearly yeah. their language is different and distinct and they're, you know, highfalutin and they're just really intelligent sounding. So anyways, uh, so with all of this, complex sentences and words are dropping away. So how do you feel like the loss of letters actually affects the island's culture as well? There's a book. I have never read this book, but it's upstairs. It's a, no. I have it upstairs. It's my wife's because she, my wife, um, minored in anthropology at it. And uh, she has a linguistics book by a, lingu- a linguist whose work I read for a linguistics course I took at Curry called, uh, his name is Walt, I, I believe his first name is Walt, his last name is Wolfram. And the book is called, um, I'm going to mispronounce this, Hoytoid of the Outer Banks. <laughs> Okay. And it's about, but it's about the spe- like specific dialects found in sort of isolated pockets of the East Coast, on like islands where there is a sort of distinct dialect. And this is what Nollop Island reminded me of because it's a little bit more cut off. So the very, very, very regional language has allowed itself to 
continue to evolve and they speak in a slightly different way than um, other parts of, of the country or even the state. A little peel back behind the curtain, my grandmother on my mom my mom my mom's mother my grandmother on my mother's side was not american she's not from america she's not born in america she was born in newfoundland and newfoundland there's a lot of jokes among canadians about newfoundlanders because they talk a little funny because newfoundland is an island out in the middle in the atlantic and it's not as crazy but if you've heard newfoundlanders talk it's got this sort of mix of of irish scottish with english accents so they will say some of the things that you typically expect from like you know canadians here on like degrassi high um <laughs> where it's like you know, oh yeah okay a boot yeah um <laughs> it's like robert trubatsky and um but at the same time there's this sort of there's almost like a little brogue in something like i, I listen to the band great big c and there, there's there's some like expressions and things like that and and so i can totally see how this weird way of talking develops on this different sorry not weird mm. different way of talking develops on this island even though it's english mm-hmm. and the mainlanders sound funny mm-hmm. and it's from experience both academically and personally genealogically mm-hmm. do you think that the island started to get closer in their speaking habits to <laughs> the mainland once they started losing the letters I found no, because what I found ironic is in how, in some ways, like the loss of the letters caused people to find synonyms, mm, mm-hmm. at least at first, that are actually sound more complex. Mm, like they had to true. go out of their way to find, like, like kind of how you were in your intro. Oh, sure. You had to go out of your way to find the words that fit, and it, it yeah. might not be the most complex sentence structure, but it sounds more complex because it's wordier. Yeah, but. What I found interesting was that as we went on and on and on, what's been happening, and this happens because this this happens with the language and it happens with the society, is that it destroys the essential – essentially destroys democracy. It just mm. destroys the democracy of communication. Absolutely. In our language – our language is democratic as, 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 as Americans, we, we have freedom of speech. We, you know, we can debate the merits of, of, you know, and the lengths of that all we want, but we can converse in a way that is familiar to each other. And we can use words we would like to use. When you start eliminating letters, it, it conversation becomes less open. Mm-hmm. The people to be fear each other more. And that ties into the society. And I don't, it it is a you could see the society slowly progress toward a more totalitarian dictatorial fascist state. Oh, absolutely. If I'm politically, and 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 you see that through, but and you see that in fascist states. I mean, if we're going to go back to like Hitler and and and, and Nazi Germany and, or Stalinist, Stalin wasn't a fascist; he was a communist. But you know, he was on the other extreme, but he still had the same tactics of stifling communication and stifling language and things like that. You see that in those societies. Yeah. Yeah. And and so that was it was just what I liked about that's what I liked about the novel because he did it in a way that was it was almost subtle at first. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then when it then he so he held those cards like really close to the vest until it was time to sh- really start showing what was really happening to the people in the society. It gets really scary, which is why I uh, under my breath said it's like the SS because it mm-hmm. really was people informing yeah, yeah, yeah. each other. But he doesn't but he doesn't go there right away and that's Oh, really, no, absolutely not. Yeah. No. One of the biggest things for me that I was seeing is just the inability to relate to each other or or talk to them. 
I think it's easier, obviously, for the people in an intimate setting and family members to be able to discuss things, but it's hard also because you wonder whom can you trust because we see the father of Ella with his poker buddies and he let something slip and because he owed somebody money there's like a grudge there and so you know there's no trust there no trust the teacher and the student situation or neighbors and then once many people like the exodus and Ella is left there and she tries to knock on that one lady's door or leave a note and that that person was like crazy girl who visited yesterday you need to you know stay away from us we just want to be left alone so with this I think it's just cutting down all sorts of communication especially since their society mm-hmm. is really built on letter writing they don't yeah. you know use the telephone and things like that and just face to face it seems like a very personable and uh, fellowship-like community, and so that just really tears it down. You're also losing the ability to import, export things. Mm-hmm. Um, we see this on a personal level with Ella's father, and he makes those tiny little jokes, <laughs> which, which cracks me up. I just, I don't know. Like, of all the professions, that's his profession. But, you know, he, he can't, I think, I can't remember what the guy called them. But because he said that I'm, I'm not going to call them what they normally are because of uh, the law. Yeah, the law. Uh, so that's an issue. And then I think the grocery stores start to see they're not able to get in as much. So you know that sort of society, like that structure, uh, is starting to break down. And then it's of course introducing fear into the society, which yeah. I think is something that really starts to break everything down. Because if you're not fearing for yourself that you're going to let something slip you're also fearing that someone else is going to betray you so who knew that so much was tied you know to language but i think this is a good study for languages that we take now and just how i I think it lets us recognize how you know latin really is tied with the romans and look what they did and you have spanish and different forms of it and it's tied with all the cultures and everything so yeah with this you, you you start to see lots of bad things happening to the society and the culture. Yeah. Well, I think I I feel like we actually answered this next one in in our impromptu discussion in regards to the film. Yeah, it was it was talking about would this concept work in any other form other than letter writing? And I think you and I both say that no. I think no. there are possibilities, but I think those possibilities wouldn't pan out because it would take away the spirit of the novel yeah. I, th- I think it needs to be in this way so we'll yeah and i i completely agree with you yeah. oh for once in your life yeah, I, I know <laughs> it happens i know if we could take a yeah. game that'd be we could create a bingo game and every then, time tom agrees you can put put a little token down there oh great the <laughs> next question that was was actually mine so i guess i'll go ahead and ask well um, thanks for taking control of my show please oh. please Hey, man, you said you didn't want to edit it, but that's okay. You can ask your question. No. <laughs> oh, don't be that way. I'm just kidding. You go ahead. All right. Well, it's just, it just the question I had was in what what era time period was it set? Now, at the very, very beginning of the book, uh, the very first page, uh, before, well, actually before the first letter, there's some definitions. And the third one is Nollop, and it says Nollop, noun. A 63-square-mile autonomous island nation in 20, 21 miles southeast of Charleston, South Carolina, established as a quasi-communal 
communal society by dispossessed Southern Americans in the 1840s, the island declared its independence from the United States in 1870. Over the years, the country's leaderships have sought to uplift, uplift its black and white citizens through almost monastic devotion to liberal arts education and scholarship, effectively elevating language to a national art form while regulating modern technology to the status of avoidable nuisance. Formerly Utopiana, the country's name was changed in in 1904 to honor native son Nevin Nollop, the author of the popular program Pangram Sentence, the quick brown fox comes from the stock. Um, so we know it takes place after 1904, but I was just uh, – th- there's references to the Pony Express, but there's also references to radio. So it was kind of like every once in a while I was like, when does this take place? Because uh, the technology seems so off to me. Because uh, the Pony Express was the, the 1860s and the radio wasn't invented until the 1920s. But and and I think it was uh, is the time is the time in the setting important or is it the set in the present day and this is just a reflection result about of the origin I just told you from the from the beginning of the book. I'm Google searching now how long it takes for glue to decompose. It said this answer by Charles uh-huh. N says <laughs> it depends on the type of glue. Some like PVA glues will decompose in a month or so. Good epoxies and silicone will take many years. That doesn't really help me. So I, 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 I couldn't cheat like you did with that two-month answer that you gave an hour back. Um, How is it cheating? I used the book. Sure, sure. That's not what we teach our students. When we say use evidence, <laughs> that's not what we're looking for. So, so me going on page... <laughs> oh, here we go. Page 3 and seeing Sunday, July 23rd, mm-hmm. and then just turning to page <laughs> 208 and seeing go. Wednesday, November sure. 22nd. So it's more than two months. Sorry, it was. Ooh, I can't count. Incorrect evidence. That's a penalty box for you. My so, bad. Anywho, for me, it's less than six. Okay, for me, the time isn't important, and it's mainly because I felt like, and I think intentionally, the society is so separated from others that it seems like their way of life is distinct enough, anyways. So. They might be a little behind the times, but this also seems like this is how they want it, and they don't want other cultures or societies to dilute their way of living. So that's is that is that a cheat? Is that a non-answer? No, actually, that's pretty much the same answer that I had. Like, it's purposely ambiguous so that you mm-hmm, can just mm-hmm. assume it takes place in the present day, and the culture was cultivated in isolation. So this culture has all these quirks that were able to last along because it's so cut off. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, what a good question you had there. <laughs> oh man. Hey, do you think that this whole situation could only happen in a pretty self-sustaining society or do you think it could happen to good old wherever we are? I want to say that maybe the United States is too large to happen and too diverse for it to happen as quickly as it does on Nollop Island. Mm -hmm. Like it would take generations unless it's like a dystopian dictatorial society, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, like, like the Soviet union or something. I could see something like that happening in the Soviet union geographically was big, Mm -hmm. but having this on an Island with its own rules, Kind of like how Arthur Miller has Salem helps the suspension of disbelief and the verisimilitude come out and um, and 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 makes this uh, makes this as as believable as it is. Yeah, and I think the society as a whole is stronger for its inclusive nature. 
it just seems like being able to rely on itself has brought it up stronger. Mm-hmm. I I feel like this whole thing would be more damaging or devastating for a society that really relies on imports and exports, like relying on other societies uh, would probably break it down even more because they would probably at some point have to stop importing whatever they're importing or exporting whatever they're exporting. And then if that's the only thing that they get, then without it, they would they would collapse. Mm-hmm. So I'm not really sure. I kind of think about Rome and the Gauls. And what Caesar says about the Gauls is that, you know, certain societies or certain uh, clans and things of them are stronger because they don't export from other people. Uh, they, Some people believe, the Greeks thought this of the Romans, that, you know, the Romans were effeminate and weaker because they would get all of this stuff and they had all of this magnificent stuff, but here are the Gauls and, and certain other uh, people just relied on the you know the way of the land and and killing other people and they're stronger for that so I, I sort of think back to that what would you say this novel as a whole says about the nature and purpose of communication and community i think it goes back to a little bit of what i was talking earlier about like linguistics and sociology and how you have dialect and you have a dialect can tie a community together or tie a region together. Mm-hmm. I do dialect every year with my students. We talk about how we do a dialect quiz the New York Times had on their website year, a few years ago where you're asked about like how you say certain words or what are your words for this particular thing. Like, you know, for instance, in fact, there's a there's an entire page called Soda versus Pop or Pop versus Soda. I think it's popversoda.com, which is like, you know, how do you pronounce, how, what do you call the sweet and carbonated beverage? Do you say pop, soda, Coke, whatever? So those certain things can be very, very important because they're part of your identity. Um, you and I see it on a very regular basis, and that's slang. Mm-hmm. Um, slang, we deal with it every day in our jobs. Because uh, teenagers develop new slang like all the time. <laughs> Nobody yes. really says swag as much as they were saying it a few years ago. Sure. And, and and I hear some odd slang words and stuff like that. But then I think about to the 80s and 90s when we were saying things that were just odd as well. Mm. But that's part of a – it's part of a community. It's part of a culture. And so, yeah, I, I think this – I think the book is saying how – is showing how important that is. Absolutely. And when you start to, when you start forcibly taking away a way in which somebody communicates the words they use, the letters they use, mm-hmm. you are taking away their identity. You are telling them that they are wrong. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I agree that communication and community, I think it's it's necessary. I think without it, people start to break down and they start to break down in different ways, which I think we saw in several different characters. We saw Ella's father revert back to his alcoholism we saw Jeanette start to paint her body with mm-hmm. lead-based paints which was yeah. somewhat uh ridiculous and it's you know uh, it was absurd I sh- I, that's probably a better word and that man Rory's wife and child left him so yeah I think we start to start to see that oh man very sad Here's a question I was thinking about a long time. Why do you think the stockade and the lash are considered equal punishments? And I only say equal punishments because you have a choice between those two for your second... Punishment. Sentence. Your second sentence. Yeah. How... 
how long in the stockade? How many lashes? Was it? Uh, that, that's, I, I was know trying if you to figure. Yeah, I don't know. I was trying to figure it out. I was like, is it because the the lash is a quick punishment? It's over in the stockade. You're in there for longer. So on like it's a degree thing like you can either have one or the other you can get it over quickly or you can you know they're proportions to each other I, I I don't know no thoughts yeah I I, I was wondering that too yeah yeah that was the only logical answer I could come up with the only thing I came up with was an equation here's my equation are you ready go ahead ostracism equals physical pain do you think that's true I think that's I think you're on the right track yeah because if you think about it. All of the punishments are like social ostracism to a certain extent. Because the first yeah, yeah. one is a public reprimand. Then you've got stockades, which is public. The last it's like, is it's also public, public humiliation as well. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And then exile, I mean, everyone knows when you're gone. So I yeah. think there's something about this, which, you know, we've talked about with Eleanor and Park. I think we talked about it with. Um, Bison Glass- Men. Oh, I don't. You'd have to explain that one. Glass menagerie, just the idea of you know what do what are people thinking of me at this moment? Well, them running Lenny out of town. Mm, okay. George, George, George being protective of Lenny. What are they thinking of him? The the sort of mm, sure, sure. Uh, subtext in that regard. Yeah, I can get behind that. An unanswerable question, perhaps. But I, I just thought something to think about. Which one would you choose? Probably the lash, just mm. to get it over with. Yeah, I don't know if I'd like to sit, stand, lay on my knees. I, I, is there even a word for that? It's not lay. It's not stand. It's not sit. I wouldn't like to rest my body on the knees and have my arms and legs like that, or arms and head. So I, I think I'd probably go with the lash as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. So now we're gonna get into some sort of the end and and Nollop in particular here. So Nate Warren, who's the young man that comes over from the mainland and. Tassie and he end up, I would say, falling in love. I don't think that's too strong. Uh, he yeah. ends up saving her at the end. So he suggests that Nollop was, and I quote, a charlatan and a, quote, con man, and that the pangram responsible for his divine status may have been stolen from somebody else. So what is the author, Dunn, suggesting here about the ways in which human societies venerate and mythologize sacred texts and heroic ancestors? I, I started answering this question, and I ended up looking at it through the lens of like the iconoclast. Okay. You know, the person who's going to tear down that mythology. Sure, sure. And, and I, I started to bring that up earlier, and I stopped myself so that we – because I didn't want to <laughs> jump the gun on the question. Look at you with your self-control. And I had two examples. One is fictional and the other one is real life. Okay. The fictional one is from The Simpsons. <laughs> no, 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 no. This is a great, it's a great episode. Okay. No, no, no. And, and, and Donovan, I hope you're listening to this because you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's called – the episode is called uh, – this, this reference, it's perfectly cromulent. The episode is called Lisa the Iconoclast. Okay. She discovers that Jebediah Springfield, the – person whose statue is in the town square who gave the town its model uh, the noble spirit and biggins the smallest man who is the davy crockett the daniel boone of springfield is not who he everybody thinks he I is see. and 
she's going to tear down the myth. And she f- literally fights with the president of the Springfield Historical Society. It's a great episode. It's one of those like brilliant Simpsons episodes. And I would highly recommend it. And I don't know off the top of my head what season it's in. It's from the first – somewhere in the first ten seasons. Uh, but it's, it's at least in the iconoclast. It's an amazing episode of the Simpsons. It's a, it's a perfectly cromulent one. What the does sec- cromulent mean? It's a reference to that episode. Oh, so it's not a real word. Yeah, it's there's a scene where they're, they're, the kids are watching a film strip about Jebediah Springfield. There's a film about Jebediah Springfield. Mr. Hooper and Mr. Krabappel are standing in the back of the room, and one of them says to the other, says to the other I never heard the word in Biggins before I came to Springfield. And the other one says, well, it's a perfectly cromulent word. It's oh. like a – yeah, so it's just kind of a running joke among Simpsons fans and my wife and I. Um, the second real life – It's a review and that's it. No, no, it's yeah, no, I got people know it. The real life example I have is local to us, and it is Thomas Jefferson. Oh yeah, because of Sally Hemings Mm. and how he fathered children with a slave, and how does that you know and and. Just a question, and we don't have to answer this, and we don't have to explore it on the episode, but the major question that you have to ask yourself when you get to study American history and you start venerating the people who founded the country is they all were slave owners, and how do we reconcile that? You know, And how do we – especially those of us who were white, how do we, how do we come to terms with that, and how do we explore that person in who they were – who they actually were and what they actually did versus the legend of, you know, Thomas Jefferson, because, you know, he, because there, because there's multiple sides of this entire thing. And it's like I said, we don't have the time to get into it here, but that was one of the first examples I thought of and how there has been this controversy over the last, like, God, it's like 15, 20 years now, maybe even longer than that, but it's probably about 15, 20 years since I heard of it about, Near the discovery of the lineage of the Hemings family, and a how do we address that in American history? And b how do we ha, ha, locally, being that we're both in Charlottesville, how do they address it here? Yeah. You know, how do you address it at Monticello? You know, and 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 how do you address slavery at Monticello or Montpelier or, or um, Highland? Is it Highland or is it Ashland? I think it's Highland because they recently There's changed the names. No, I well it was Ashland Highland, and then I they recently changed the names or Mount Vernon. I see. I think so, you know so. I just that's the example I like went right to because of its complexity and because of the ongoing debate and argument, a debate and argument we should be having. But so that's what I was looking at. Yeah. And I think that perhaps Dunn is saying that sometimes sometimes we do venerate them too easily. And that's where we get into trouble. Would you consider Ella a an iconoclast? Not a purposeful one. No. Nah. I think an iconoclast, she's like an accidental one, maybe. Mm. That's not her. That's not her purpose. She like she wants to save the town. Yeah. She wants to save her society. She wants to solve the problem. She's not looking to tear down Nollop. Would it be Tassie? Maybe okay. Tassie and Nate are probably the closest to that because they're Tassie's a little more rebel. Tassie's more outright rebellious. Uh-huh. As for me, I felt like, and this is interesting. I had to really think about this because I study ancient texts. I teach ancient texts. You know, and we, we talk about heroes back then and everything, so it's interesting to, to consider this uh, at, at a different time, what would it be like. But I, I feel like maybe Dawn is, is 
suggesting that texts and people are fallible, and sometimes they only best suit the time that they exist in, but can cause trouble outside of their time. So I, I think perhaps of the Aeneid, for example, which it doesn't really cause trouble outside of its time, but it was not only supposed to be a national text, because at that time students were more often reading Homer works and because they, they didn't have a Latin text, but mm-hmm. it was also a form of propaganda because Augustus wanted to clean up the cities of Rome. He wanted to implement his his Roman uh, his moral campaign, and then he also wanted to prov- prove his uh, divine DNA is probably not the best word, but basically I want to say divine right, but that's like yeah, no, that's, that's actually, a few his, hundred his, years later. Yeah, <laughs> it's his, not like a his, thousand years later. Oh but. boy, his yeah, his divine bloodline basically yeah, yeah, yeah. so the, you know i think that works in his time and and whatever was happening but it's i think the meaning of it starts to shift and so now when we're studying it of course i talk about that sort of context but i think meaning that we gather out from it today has somewhat changed so i just feel like texts and people aren't always flexible and can't really match new settings or situations so and uh, i don't know i i wonder if there's something to be said about what's currently going on you know I, I think, no, Robert I th- e. Lee and <laughs> you know to a certain extent I think we have to recognize him as like an important historical figure yeah but I think he in this current context though it's being warped and so that's what I mean by people not necessarily being flexible because I think he needs to stay in the time that he lived in and should not be brought forward does that make sense am i but, saying blasphemous things um no but then again there's also the debate like uh, kind of in the same way with jefferson where sure. you have an interpretation of this person that that will willfully ignore certain parts of his life because it doesn't fit the narrative that you want there are plenty of people who would willfully ignore the sally hemmings controversy oh yeah yeah and there are people who will willfully ignore anything to do with slavery with Robert E. Lee, you know, because of the way they're venerated the hero. And and there's also a with the with the controversy over monuments, there's also a history of the monuments themselves and why they were put up there in the early nineteen hundreds and nineteen twenties that has a lot to do with preserving and symbolizing Jim Crow than the Confederacy and that history, which is very buried because it's not something that people study very often mm-hmm. because people aren't interested in the history of a, you know, very few people know the history of certain monuments and memorials. Mm-hmm. You know, I think some people might know the history of the Statue of Liberty. I know the history of the Statue of Liberty because I'm from New York. Mm. So I learned about it in, in Bertoldi and, and raising her and raising the money for the statue with the pedestal. And it was built in France and was a gift and et cetera. But I couldn't tell you why there's uh, you know the history behind the fact that there's a confederate monument somewhere in wisconsin yeah wisconsin why is there a confederate monument in wisconsin (laughs) i don't know do we know anyone from wisconsin no but i'm just geographically speaking oh no i was just saying do we yeah like it's just like but but there's but there's a specific history behind it and it has to do with a lot that doesn't have to do with the civil war so but yeah i think you're i think you're right it's like and, and virgil's a good example as are some other texts that we would now view as quote problematic oh, yeah. even even some of our pop culture from the last 30 years in fact I, I think i wrote about i wrote to the prof prof and emily about this um talking about how there are certain movies i brought up t 
teen sex comedies from the 80s and 90s. If you watch American Pie, there's a scene where Shannon Elizabeth's character gets naked and Jason Biggs' character has set up a camera to broadcast that to his friends over the internet. This was in 1999. We had cases over the course of the last few years where that has been done in a way that is not funny. And you go back and look at that scene and you're like, wow, this is, you know, like I laughed at this when I first saw it because it was like, hey, you know, and hey, boobs. But like, yeah, because it's like, you know, she is very sexy and it's just like, wow. But at the same time, when you contextualize in present day, you're like, wow, that is so wrong. And you're right. There are certain things, especially in in older texts or especially texts of like certain eras where it's like, if you don't know the context of that and you try to read it completely out of context, it's like yeah. it could be massively offensive or it could Absolutely. be completely lost on you too. And we've talked about friends before and the gay jokes and everything. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, in, in this day and age, I don't know if it would fly as much. So, mm-hmm. yeah. so talking about Nollip here, it's interesting that Amos Minope, who is the father, he writes by accident a sentence which surpasses Nollip's illustrious pangram. That sentence being, let me scroll back up so I can get it exact, pack my box with five dozen wicker jugs. Because this is actually just a sentence on, uh, I think it's to his wife at the time, and it was just left on the table. And when Ella's all by herself, she does what any, I think, normal human being would <laughs> would want to do, you know, find comfort. And she's actually, like, reading letters because they keep all of them and she's reading letters that were left on the table or private letters between her mother and father things like that so she finds this and it's accidental so what do you think the significance is that amos he came up with it by accident basically and and nala probably worked i don't know really hard to find that or something i don't remember if this was mentioned in the novel or if i just imagined it but you know the old bit about like Put a bunch of monkeys in front of a typewriter, and eventually one of them's going to type up Hamlet or something. You ever hear that? <laughs> eventually, you, you know, uh, you know that you've ever heard that yes, the monkey at the typewriter right. bit. And I was—that's what made me think of it. Like, you know, eventually this was just going to happen by randomly, random chance. And it brings me back to a scene from Lost. Oh boy, what scene? Desmond. Oh. One of my favorite favorite storylines from all of Lost is Desmond and Penelope. Oh. Desmond, I brother. Scottish Desmond, I uh, not Penny's boat. Not Penny, it's not Penny's boat. <laughs> I, I I'm getting close to my Andy Leyland imitation. I can't do a good imitation of Andy Leyland. One day I will. But Desmond's like in a jewelry store, and he is going to buy the ring. And the old older woman who is one of the like people who I don't remember what season's from. She's like, you're gonna buy this ring. Somebody ends up dying at the end of the scene, gets hit by a car or something. And, and the, but the line I remember is she says the universe has a way of correcting itself. And that's what this made me think of. It's like, you know, it happened by random chance because the universe, it's like almost like karma came around or, or whatever. And it's, it's kind of cute in a way. It, it, it helps him stick to the sort of whimsy that the novel has had and not get too pressing but it also gives him a way to to wrap it up like eureka i found it sort of sort of moment there i think it's like a slap in the face 
to uh, not only to Nollop, well, maybe not as much to Nollop, but definitely to the administration that and the councilmen's and everything, and, and just goes to show how misguided they were. That, you know, they're relying on this guy, speaking from beyond the grave, to give them insight into language. And here someone came up with something much better than that. It was accidental. So I think it's like breaking. Hey, it's like being an iconoclast on accident because mm-hmm. uh, Amos Minope could basically, he basically took a jackhammer and destroyed that statue. That's a good point. So I, I enjoyed that. Yeah. Hey, hey. I think the next question was yours, Tom. <laughs> why, why got be with the loss of letters? <laughs> no, wait. Oh, I'm, I'm the wrong. I'm on the wrong one. Sorry. Yeah, well, that um, was my question. I was looking at it all. Okay, what if they didn't find the sentence? What would the Orwellian ending? You've read 1984. Have, yeah. Okay, so you know the ending of 1984. <sighs> Doesn't he go back to work? Yeah, it's it's not a happy ending. What would that Orwellian ending look like in this story? Remember that one time that person uh, emailed us to say like they wanted some free publicity to send 1984 to uh, to Congress. <laughs> That's what this reminds me of. Yeah, what would it be like? Uh, yeah. Hmm. I think that as we saw at the end, even the administration. I keep calling them that, but the administration was starting to break down and realizing, oh, this is not good. I feel like they would leave or they would still commit suicide because it's just such a desperate situation. And Ella, I think, would still be the last person standing as as she was. And I would think that either the remaining officials, especially Lytle, would work with Ella or the last scene would be Ella leaving the island or destroying the statue. Okay. I wrote, you'd have to switch the narration. So it wouldn't work unless you switch the narration. Or mm-hmm. if you're doing this epistolary thing, Same. instead of a letter, mm-hmm. we either have a letter from an outsider back home or some sort of report from an anthropologist, oh, sociologist, yeah. whatever. Sure, sure. Like a National Geographic article about this weird, <laughs> strange place. Yeah. That is absolutely silent in a horror, eerie horror sort of way. This is where I could picture a last scene in a movie where nobody says anything and they just walk around. It's almost like Stepford wifey sort of like nobody says anything. And it's – you can feel – you can feel it in the air, that sort of thing. But if it were were using Dunn's narrative structure, you would have it from maybe Nate – we could use Nate or somebody, somebody who came back and they're walking around the island and they they write a letter or a journal entry or something away from the island saying, I was just there and, and this is what I saw. Do you think Phil Collins would be going on in the background? Do, 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 do. I can feel it coming in the air tonight. Yeah. Oh, Lord. That'd be sad. As the camera pans out. What's the population at the end of your ending? Very few. Maybe maybe less than 100. I don't know how many people are on the island to begin with. Uh, maybe like a couple of families. Time. Yeah, yeah. Poor Ella it would be a ghost town. Would Ella still be there? In the pessimistic Orwellian ending, yes. Because, because she doesn't escape. That's like the pessimistic ending is she never escapes. Sure. And maybe there's, there's less than 20 people on the island or something and they're just... You know, yeah. it's what's left of it. 
mm-hmm. her interactions with the council and Lytle, they almost take that like did bits and pieces of this like his insistence on keeping like to this tradition remind you of like the lottery by Shirley Jackson. You ever read that story? That's on my reading list. I don't think I've not read. It. Okay, it's it's a short story. It's it's really really good. So I won't I won't I'm not gonna. I'm not going to go any deep to that because I think you should read it. It's okay. very short. And, and if I ha- if I talk more about it, I'm going to give away too much. But um, for anybody who's read the lottery, there there's a I, I made a connection there in terms of the devotion to the to Nollip and the tradition and stuff that's going on here. As yeah. barbaric as it got. As barbaric. Uh, well, I'm going to get a little I'm going to get a little religious on you, which there there is some I think religious undertones anyways because i think community is a very christian idea of of you know living in a community of believers and things like that things that we see uh as themes throughout the bible and unfortunately nollop here starts to uh he starts to compete with the big upstairs aka god so on page 121 is a letter i'm trying to figure out how much of it i need to read Aha! So, let's see, who is writing this? Oh, her aunt, Mitty, is writing to Ella. So, here we go. It is Monty, October 16th, which means it's Monday. So, she says, Ella, I cannot help you. Not now. Please tell Tassie. Rory is gone. Rory was a little shopkeeper. The mother was kind of in a relationship with him. It began this way. Brash council representatives, upon reaching his northern acreage, gave him papers that gave them authority to appropriate his property. No reason was given other than it is the council's wish. Meaning it isn't Nollop's wish, was Rory's angry answer or response. On the contrary, the council serves only Nollop. By extension, then, Mr. Cummels, whatever laws the council passes are laws which by their nature must certainly have met with Nollop's approval. But I can't possibly see how stealing another man's property meets with Nollop's approval. The reasons are strictly ecclesiastical in nature, Mr. Cummels. Perhaps the council wishes to erect a tabernacle on this site. Rory was seething, his countenance nearly vermilion in hue. My worry that moment was that poor Rory might have a coronary arrest. A tabernacle? A temple? You actually mean, you actually mean a house in which to worship Nollop? That is correct. But what about the supreme being we presently choose to worship? They can't say God anymore because D is gone. There is no other supreme being but Nollop. Repeat that statement, sir, please. I want Mrs. Percy to hear it. So, <laughs> woohoo, it's getting a little crazy here. So, what does this novel here suggest about the dangers of humans assuming they know God's will with absolute certainty? <laughs> did this make you nervous at all once you did you notice what was happening before these sorts of things started to happen? Well, this is this is going very very Arthur Miller on one in one hand. I did mention the Crucible before. Sure, sure. I don't want to say it's starting to get cult like, mm-hmm. but having seen enough about Jonestown and the Branch Davidians, and you know, like it reminded me a little of that. To bring it back to more mainstream and not like extremist, because sure. because I, I can you and I have variations on our religious views. But at the same time, I think we both agree that Jonestown and the Branch Davidians were extremist groups. <laughs> um, I was born and raised um, Lutheran. 
my wife and I were married in a Lutheran church in uh, DC and we had, you know, we had to do the premarital counseling with the pastor, which was like a couple of sessions or whatever. It's not like um, pre-Cana, which is the Catholic, you know, like got to go to class and all that. And most of my family is Catholic, by the way. Uh, but my pastor was from Georgia originally, and he was raised Methodist, Southern Methodist. And the way he described Southern Methodist would, Methodist growing up in the church he grew up in was <laughs> you, you walk you have to walk life along a straight line if you take one step to the right or one step to the left you're going to hell wow. and and he he described it as a very 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 strict upbringing where you wonder like you know you, you do start to wonder what it like it's like that strict is there more of a chance for people to rebel at a certain age because it's too strict because that's kind of our human nature to at some point in our lives like try to exercise free will and also if you get too strict in your views of say like the bible or something which is a work that is ancient and really very much open to interpretation because if it wasn't martin luther wouldn't have had wouldn't have literally nailed it to the door (laughs) what issues he had like if you get too strict, are you becoming the authority yourself as opposed to the higher power? And we saw this like the Catholic Church too, throughout like the Middle Ages and things like that. Like, you know, who's in charge? Are you worshiping God or are we worshiping the church and things like that? So it made me think of that that argument with regard to religion. And it also made me wonder if Dunn was criticizing preaching for uh, uh not preaching from the pulpit, uh politics from the pulpit. You know, the idea that that there are people um, in our in our country or any country that use their um, standing in a religious community as a way to press politics and that can rub some people the wrong way especially me in the United States where you have freedom of religion so there is a separation of church and state like so I was wondering if he was criticizing the nature of some people to want to combine church and state mm, yeah but I'm looking at it from a pers- the point of view with somebody who has a political science degree so <laughs> Would you consider Nollop Church, though? In that letter you just read, it sounded like they were going in that direction. True, yeah. Like golden calf direction. Oh, Like yeah. Moses is going to come down and th- you know, Charlton Heston's going to come down in a minute and chuck the Ten Commandments, the mm-hmm. Nollop statue. You know, like that looked like that, – that was the implication I got out of the passage you just read. Like we're going in the direction like Nollop's replaced God, like, you know – we we've we've ditched the first the first commandment, right? Mm, yeah. <laughs> they should have no other god but me. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I think uh, I mean it. It certainly made me nervous. <laughs> you know, we as human beings are fallible, and so I, I think it's hard for anyone to feel like they have the right answer. And clear, it's it's we can't know what God's will is. I think you know either from a religious standpoint or even a secular one. Mm-hmm. Everyone's sort of out there trying to figure out what their purpose is in the world. And so to stand there and feel like you know what that is, I think you, you're way off base. So for them to believe that they know what Nollop is talking about from beyond the grave, I think is, is something uh, quite similar. And it's just dangerous because we do get into those extremist groups or, you know, mm-hmm. people who are more proselytizing. Yeah, yeah. It's a really Proselyti- weird word. Proselytizing? Yeah, but be- yeah. yeah, basically condemning more than trying to be- bring people to the truth through love, which is, you know, what what should be done. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. 
Well, and there's also that that idea that like you know we can we can we can as humans like because people have free will and they can question authority and questioning authority is something that, especially the questioning authority is what this country is founding on. We can as humans and we can as Americans as even even within Christianity and with within without Christianity like we can discuss debate and argue what we interpret as purpose meaning will will of god will of allah will of buddha whatever whatever deity we worship whatever you know like we could you me <laughs> a rabbi a priest <laughs> walk into a bar you know we can have that discussion and we can have a civil discussion and that's what philosophy is right yeah. that's what theology is and but then you have that other person and, and this is what thought i got out of this who is taking that and saying no I for certain they're claiming mm -hmm. I for certainly know the will and I'm going to use that to exercise power. And that's where you have it's it, that's where it's becoming almost like a well in that case it's it's almost cult like it sounds his language is very cult like. Mm -hmm. But but yeah it is is that perversion it's that perversion of like what like you said like there's a message here of love and compassion and you know I'm just thinking of Christianity in general. Pick your yeah. sect, pick your denomination, right? But the sure. the general message from what I got from a kid in Sunday school was, you know, love and compassion and and goodness. Mm -hmm. But there are plenty of people among all the religions who warp that to their own ends, yeah. and that seems like what he was starting to get at with that. Yeah, it's interesting once you start to look at these political figures because clearly they're corrupt, and the police force you start to see how corrupt it is because. They're doing what I'll call prescriptions, proscriptions, which is a term that has ancient origins where <laughs> political party, you know, in Rome, basically, they would put up lists and these, any men on the list could be killed and then whoever did the killing, like the, the, the their property and their finances and things would be divided among, you know, those people and things like that. This is basically what we're doing just without the killing. And so mm -hmm. even though the councilmen are saying we're gonna we're going to raise a tabernacle, they're also taking their ho the houses for themselves. So there's some some corruption there too. Yeah. 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 Which well, also happens yeah. in the crucible. Man, you people... mention in that. Well, because it's so much like it. I are mean you people choosing that next month? No, um, people are are calling one another witches in the crucible, not because they believe that the person is possessed by Satan, but because they have like. There's in one case the person has a grievance with his neighbor over land. Sure, yeah, yeah. So it's just it's a way to get rid of somebody. Exactly. Well, we're wrapping up, friends, and we've got about two more questions. <laughs> yes, I want to talk about Tassie and Ella because I feel like. We haven't talked about them a lot, actually. We kind of went around talking about them, but they're, I would say, even though it is Ella Minope, they are our two main characters here. Yeah. So they're tackling the problem that's harming the island differently. How do you feel like they help or hinder, and do you think we can choose one as the hero, and if so, which one would you choose? I think... I hedged and said they can be both heroes oh because resistance resistance movements are multifaceted. Oh my gosh! Um, I'm and we've both read things on like the civil rights movement, where the civil rights movement is very complex and there's a lot of infighting and a lot of no, I don't even see infighting. Difference of opinion among the people who were the leaders of the civil rights movement in the '60s. 
Um, and the more the more you look at it, the more you see how complex it was between King and Malcolm X and uh, Stokely Carmichael and and uh, Bobby Seale and like you know there's different figures and they all had different philosophies on how to handle this and I see that a little bit in Tessie and Ella where Ella seems to be trying to work within the system to save her culture and Tassie basically goes underground and becomes a true rebel. And that's hindrance because that's a hindrance to her and to her cause because she gets into so much trouble that she has to kind of go into self-preservation mode and therefore kind of is not able to focus on the cause. Whereas Ella isn't rebelling enough on some level because she's still trying to be she's trying to do it by pun intended or not intended the letter of the law so do you think i could bring you up for honor charges because you keep cheating on this show how are cheating sure sure well would you what what about helping or hindering do you feel like you answered that question yeah. Okay, I, I, I wasn't satisfied, but we'll move on. That's okay. So, <laughs> What's your answer? <laughs> yeah, thank you. I'll, I'll gladly answer. Well, Ella, I think, which is interesting because now that I'm thinking about it, maybe it's okay. But the secret meetings and the parties, I feel like, don't necessarily help the situation just because I think it could get them into some hot water. But then I think back to early Christians, and they were – Christians were lawbreakers, and there are several reasons why, actually. It's all against the law and the Twelve Tables. Mm-hmm. But one of them was the meeting in secret, which was a no-no, because if you met in secret, basically it was considered conspiracy. Mm-hmm. So I, I just wonder, though, if there is a danger to these secret meetings, and could you really trust all those members of the groups? And then the parties where they celebrated the letters going out, is that really like an uplifting? Because they're sort of like giving a middle finger, I think. You know, to the the councilmen yeah. and everything. But, uh, you know, is that the best for morale, potentially, to have these parties? I'm not sure. However, Ella was the one to keep working, and she kept working until the end. So there's my, my helping. With Tassie, so the letter to the Togates, I think, was an issue. I appreciate her standing up for her mother, but I think it only it, – it creates even more tension, and I feel like – Maybe now that she's accused them of this, that they're going to be on the lookout again because it's another time. That was the, after the first time mm-hmm. that the mother, that Jeanette turned her mother in. The second time was at a grocery store. So I just feel like that was not a good situation. The letters to Nate once he was exiled, I don't think. Uh, there were – she could have been spending her time on other things, but the way Ella portrays it, it seems almost as if Tassie is only spending her time writing letters to Nate and being – Lovelorn is that the right use of the word? Yes. Um, you know, so I, I just felt like there was more, and of course the threats to the council, which were I can understand her being angry, but it got her thrown in jail, and then Ella's on her own. Is this so? So, so Tassie's letters are counterproductive. I feel like I okay. feel like, but yeah, you know, Nate that. and she do start the project, so you've got mm-hmm. Ella who finishes the project, and and Tassie starts it. Okay. Um, and you know, I, I guess I wanna go and say that Ella is the hero. I mean, it is it is her book, and she's the one who, who stays to the end. But I also think about that first letter where Ella is playing around and saying, it's not going to be too bad losing Z. It'll be something to strengthen our vocabulary because we're going to mm-hmm. have to figure out new ways of saying stuff. And Tassie is the one that slaps her uh, – metaphorically in the letter yeah, yeah, yeah. says and says that is a completely wrong way of thinking they are taking away 
something special and think of the repercussions from that. So I guess after, even though I did judge you, maybe I'll say that it is harder. <laughs> it is harder to say who's the hero of the story. Well, Tass' rebuke of her really quickly reminds me of you ever hear somebody like this, no 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 like this, this go back to <laughs> actually goes back to my reference to 9-11 where people would say oh, you yeah. would have polls and i hate media polls but this there was one that was going around about would the question was essentially would you be willing to give up some of your rights in order to feel safe and some people would say yes and then other people would rebuke them saying no because it's the slippery slope argument you know like yeah. no don't That's give – you hold on to those rights because the minute you, you capitulate, the minute you start giving them up, they will take more. And that seems oh. to be what she's saying there. Like, what were they considering? Martial law? What was the context of that? It was, it was surrounding like the Patriot Act. Things like that, yeah, yeah. It was like really early, yeah, yeah. It was just one of those. It was, it, it was in, in in all honesty, it wasn't like a Bush administration poll. It was like one of those stupid like CNN polls where they just start asking yeah. questions because they're just trying to get like you know. They're they're fishing for a headline. I see. You know, like there was in 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 a context you know, of, of just our, our current time frame, which is late August, about a week and a half ago or a week ago, there was a poll the CNN released asking like Republicans whether or not they would be willing to delay the 2020 election if something happened. And it's delay like delay it. Yeah, like it, it's just one of those stupid What's questions. But but I don't know because nothing will happen because it's just one of the it, it's a stupid question because it's a stupid question because they just want people to they want clicks right they want revenue from people clicking through that story and reading that story. I'm always scared. It, it don't be. It's just it, it's it, a lot of times you can see through the BS on a lot of me polls and things like that questions like that because sometimes the questions are so phrased so obvious because CNN or MSNBC or Fox News or whoever is looking for a particular answer so they'll they'll phrase the question just so so that you give the answer they're looking for and therefore they can get a story out of it. It's all you know. Is was the last time that the Constitution was sort of suspended was that FDR? Who had three it's terms? It's never – it was FDR. Was it? FDR yeah, had four – was elected to four oh, terms. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, because of wartime. But no, no, no. Um, that no? The rule concerning two terms did not exist. Oh, okay. The, the amendment that was passed, is it the 20 – the 25th – I think it's the 24th or 25th amendment limits the president to two terms. Prior to that – it was just almost like this gentleman's agreement, oh, and FDR, yeah, yeah, FDR yeah. never challenged it, and so that's what it was. You know, I think that I'm the uh, the bubbles, the bubbles of the show, and you're the brains. I just want to say that. Oh, well, so anyway, that's a backhanded compliment. But anyway, um, backhanded? What do you mean? I just said you're the brains. How's that backhanded? I don't know. Shall we okay. go on? Yeah, we're on the last, last question. question, people. I'm looking at this runtime, and I'm like, gee, how did that happen? <laughs> um, throughout the novel, this is actually, I, I enjoy this. Throughout the novel, the readers introduced to different writers on the islands. Uh, I mentioned Rory. We've got Georgianne and, or sorry, Jeanette, right? Georgianne? Mm -hmm. yeah. Georgianne Talgate. We have Nate, of course, and then I can't remember the other gentleman that Ella is sort of attracted to. But in what ways do these characters drive the story forward, and do you think the story would be the same without them? I, I like the multiple narrators at certain points because I like how you're getting like kind of the scope of the events, um, and I think that's how it drives it forward. Like you're getting the effect of this throughout the whole island and not just from like one person's point of view. I mean, because epistolary novels were 
I don't want to. I don't want to say with any uh, true authority because I, I don't have the authority to say. It, but I want to say they were like a mainly like nineteenth century convention, and there are a number of like Dracula's an epistolary novel. Whoa! It's all through journal entries and letters and things. Frankenstein is essentially an epistolary. Frankenstein yeah. is an epistolary novel, true, which is. True. But but for both of those, especially Frankenstein, it's dominated by like one narrator through most of it, like. Frankenstein starts off with um, the captain and his diary, and then he talks to Frankenstein, and Frankenstein is kind of like doing his narration, and then uh-huh. the monster does his narration. But it's, but it's not like here where you have a back and forth and a back and forth and a back and forth. And I, I like how this shifts in point of view because I think you get a bigger scope, and um, I like how he does try to give a unique voice to each of the characters. So it's just, absolutely, yeah, yeah. I think it would be really different without it. Well, not really different, but it would be different because through them, I think we see how other characters are being impacted by these laws and what they're driven to do and how other people deal with a breakdown mm-hmm. because otherwise we would just be looking at Ella and her family and Tassie and her mom and but what about other people and we also see how different businesses are impacted with the grocery store for instance or people with different family situations like George Ann or Rory things like that and then Ella and Tessie uh, you know, they're compelling characters, clearly, but they aren't the only people on the island, so mm-hmm. I don't think we should pretend as much. So I, I think it's it's pretty important, and yeah. I, I enjoy it. Cool. Tom, can you believe we made it? We did, we did. So the final question is, would you teach this lovely, lovely book? I would. I think this would be really fun to teach. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What do you think? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think this is an all- uh, all ages as in middle school and up. Yeah. I think the only my only hesitancy with middle school is some of the language is difficult. So mm-hmm. I think they're but that'd be a good lesson in like actual vocabulary, vocabulary practice yeah. and you know, underlining words they don't know and whatever words you are underlining, you need to define those. Especially as it thing. gets crazier and crazier in terms oh, of the absolutely. language. So you have to kinda of like reinterpret like what they're saying and use the context clues. It's actually a really cool vocabulary exercise. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well that's it. <laughs> So uh, we have a little bit of feedback, um, and we're going to go through it quickly because we are running a little bit long. So uh, they're both they're <laughs> both you. they're both from Facebook, and they're both comments on our Eleanor and Park episode, which was episode number nine. Professor Allen said it was a great episode, so thank you very much for that, uh, Professor Allen. And Robert Ward, super fan addressed the question we had about whether or not Eleanor and Park read the last issue of Watchmen and he said they never got to read the last issue together and Park openly wonders if she ever picked it up and what she would think of the line, nothing ever ends. By the way, I couldn't help but smile whenever Watchmen was brought up on the, after Shortbox Showcase recently covered it. Um, have you listened? You, did you listen to the Shortbox oh, Showcase? Oh, yes, I absolutely did. It's, I, I think I literally emailed Professor Allen and Emily and said, because they brought us up a few times, and I think part of my email was, well, you did our job for us. We don't have to do this. Absolutely. It's amazing. And I'm doing this on purpose. And, and you'll understand if you've listened to any of the episodes after a short box showcase after the episode 50. Episode 50 is short box showcase over on the Relatively Geeky Network. It covers Watchmen. Go listen to it. Emily Middleton nails the pirate part of Watchmen in a way that like I totally didn't get and 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 a number of us didn't get to the point where they keep getting mail about it and every time it's mentioned it 
irritates Professor Allen more and more and more. <laughs> That's all anybody could talk about it, how she completely got the pirate comic aspect of Watchmen. So, but that's not the only reason to what, listen to it. It is such a thorough look at it, and it was such a thorough look at it that I went back and reread Watchmen just because I was like, I can reread this book again. So you only read it because of the naked blue man. No, this is why you read it. That's... I didn't even know he existed until I saw the film. Okay. okay. But yeah, so thank you, uh, Robert. Thank you, Professor Allen. And don't forget, we haven't recorded a new outro yet, but don't forget we have a Twitter feed. It's required reading cast. And uh, we would love you to follow us. Uh, and we have a blog uh, website for the show, requiredreadingwithtomandstella.com. And we plan in the next few months at least after the school year gets going and we have our kind of rhythm down to maybe add some mini reviews of books we've been reading here and there that we won't be discussing on the show, but just, you know, just to, just to let you guys know what we're reading outside of the novels that we assign one another on a monthly basis. All mine have Fabio on the cover. I bet they do. Yeah. I don't suggest you follow uh, the show on Twitter because as it stands now, all the tweets are attacking me. So until that changes... I would honestly... You have the password. Oh, <laughs> uh, sure. You say you give me these things, but it's, I don't think it's so. It's the same password. Oh, okay. Oh, dear. Okay, well, that'll be great. I'll start attacking you on the, on the Twitters. Okay, well, anywho, the next book, that's what we're all wondering. And I thought I had a guess, but now Tom has changed it. He's called an audible, if you will. Yeah, Um. it's a book... <laughs> Well, it's yeah. yeah, it's it's something that you and I actually I know you've been reading and I've been reading. I think yes. that you and I mm-hmm. should look at Why do you do this? Because I'm a pain in the butt. Um <laughs> I think I think that you and I should should spend next month looking at March. May I ask a specific Yes, all what? three all three books. Boy, Hannah. Okay. Well, that's fine. No, that's well, fine. and you can you can leave this in I or not. You can leave this in or not. All right. This is totally up yeah. to you. Sure, sure. I only said with all three books because I know that you're going to be teaching it, and I know that you have been reading it, and I've been reading yeah. it, and we're both reading the whole thing. Yeah. And I'm almost done with book two, and I've been realizing it's not easy to look at like Persepolis and Mouse. You can do separately yeah. because they're so like Persepolis, especially. It's like almost like two separate stories. Sure, yeah. But this is one big story in three books. And it has cliffhangers. It does. It does. It's 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 not, you know, so it, it's hard to read. It was published in isolation, but yeah, so March by John Lewis, uh the writer and I don't remember who the uh who the artists the are. Stuff. Um stuff. yeah, it's which is which is a graphic novel. It's a trilogy of graphic novels. Mm-hmm. And you can I mean, you can get it at your local library. Amazon a while back had a really good deal on the slipcase edition, oh. which is like a fifty dollar book, but I got it for like twenty six dollars. Oh wow! Yeah, it was. I don't know. It was back in July, and so I was like really lucky to have it. I think in stock trades might have it, but you know, if you're going out and buying it, um, you will be spending a little bit of money, but it's it is worth it. And so yeah, I have the individual. I just got the third one in the mail, and I have yet to open it, but it's pulling a. Uh, Twilight slash Harry Potter where each of the books are getting thicker and thicker. <laughs> so I pulled I thought maybe three would be the same size as two, but I pulled it out and I was like, Nope, it's longer than two. So it's yeah, it's getting in But much like the element of P, it reads quick. 
It does. Like it's yeah. it's you can't. I, I've had to put it down because I, you know, had to go to bed or whatever. But yeah, so we'll be back in about a month for that. And thank you as always uh, for listening. Be kind. Love each other. Yeah. Good night. Slipped beneath a neighbor's front door. Nalupton, Monty, Nostromo Six. Hello there. I'm Ella, the one who smiled at y'all yesters, whose home is near. I'm writing to people who are still here, who I still see in the streets, who peep at me, wall in, porthole, portery people, wanting to say something with anxiety still in erstwhile galloping yammers. It is important that we say something to one another, any little thing. We are not low-tier animals. We are higher entities, am I right? Say something, a greeting, anything. It is important, as well, that we stay in nearness to one another, not only in a proximal sense, in the sense also as persisters, inheritors. We are all that remains, the ones who maintain the remnants. We are all that remains, the ones who maintain the remnants, the nollop that earlier was. Retreat is not an option. Ella. Thanks for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two true-freaks. That's two true-freaks. If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Reading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review on iTunes? If you're interested in following along with the books we read, you can do that and support us at the same time. Just go to twotruefreaks.com, click the Amazon.com link. Every purchase you make will go to support us and the other TTF podcasts. It costs you nothing extra, but it really helps us out. Thanks again for listening, and come back next month for our next episode. Oh, one of these nights and about 12 o'clock, this old world's going to reland rock. Saints will tremble and cry for pain, for the Lord's going to come in his heaven airplane. <laughs>
And it's your turn finally. You're you're editing editing this one too. No, that's not what we agreed. No, and I took the administrative position on this show. We agreed (laughs) that basically I would tell you to do things and you would do them without complaint. Um, (laughs) Hello? I would like you to address me uh, as ma'am or, yeah, or madam. Yes, please. Hello? And before I go on, the quote mm-hmm. was on many sides, on many sides. So get it. Uh, okay. So, anyways, with the, with the, <laughs> I mute the television. Okay. Uh, with uh, if I have to see it. Sure, sure. On my with screen. With the lo- you're getting a teddy bear for Christmas. That's all I gotta say. With the I loss of te- letters. No, you don't know the teddy bear. I'm gonna send you. With oh, the loss God. of letters. <laughs> I will. Uh, you. With the loss of mumbling in the background, what do you have to say? What? Go. Okay. 
because you mumble, with, mumble, mumble. With the loss of letters. Oh my gosh. Okay. Loss of letters. Yes. Oh my gosh. Smile dip! I thought this stuff was banned in America. Maybe they had a good reason. Oh. <laughs> And your sister seems to be going nuts for that smile dip. Ugh. Maybe I've had too much. What do you think? Would you like to eat my candy paws? Of course, you little angel. <laughs> 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 